The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Bernard of Clairvaux um, was a uh, Roman Catholic mystic and organizer of a monastery in particular, uh, somebody who spent much of his life meditating deeply on the love of God and on Jesus Christ. And he led a very fruitful and a powerful and an influential life. He was not just inside the cloister all the time. He was a very influential preacher and leader. Um, but I want to begin tonight by just thinking about our deeper life in Christ. And uh, I'm, I'm actually giving you a little bit of a foretaste of a sermon that I'm going to preach in a couple of weeks on Romans 5.5. 5. But I'm thinking about these things and they're very, uh, they're really igniting my soul and helping me to think more. Uh, in Romans 5.5, 5, um, I've got it printed on the sheet there. It talks about the love of God, which is shed abroad in our hearts. It says that hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that when you die, uh, you're going to go to heaven? That you're going to have a seat at the banquet table? Not just that there is such a banquet table, but that there's a seat with your name on it. How do you know? I'm thinking about this now. This is important, isn't it? Kind of important. Actually, very important. I actually can't think of for an individual person anything more important than this. It's what we would call Christian assurance. The doctrine of assurance. How do we know that we're saved? Christian assurance. And I've been thinking about this. I believe that there are three types of assurance. What does this have to do with Bernard? Well, we'll get there. But uh, three types of assurance. And uh, I don't have a really clear picture of this yet. I'm just beginning to think about it. All right? But I'm going to portray it or picture it like stairs. Okay? Here's a base. And then... There's a stair, there's a stair, there's a stair, and I'm going to draw it like this. Okay? The first, Christian assurance, reasoned out in the mind. Okay? The second, worked out in the life. The third, poured out in the heart. These are three types of Christian assurance. All three are valid. All three are vital. All three are important. I think that they go in ascending order in terms of how much they make an impact on your level of certainty. You know what I'm saying? This first level... Probably the best articulation of the first level I've ever heard is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible. What? Tells me so. Reasoned out. Scripture says anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ will be saved. Postulate number one. Postulate number two. I trust in Jesus Christ. Therefore, what? I'm going to be saved. I have eternal life. You've reasoned it out. Based on Scripture, Jack said, the Scripture says it, and I believe it, and that settles it, that kind of thing. 
That's level one. Reasoned out in the mind. Is that a valid form of assurance? Oh, absolutely. All right, what's this? Worked out in the life. Well, huh? The sp- well, actually, I think the Spirit does all these. I really do. I think the Spirit's all over this whole thing. So I'm not going to say the Spirit just does one of these three. I think He does all three. Okay? But level two works like this. The book of 1 John, for example, says, this is how we know, this is how we know, over and over, this is how we know. Well, that's the language of assurance, isn't it? This is how we know, this is how we know. If we see these things in our lives, love for the brothers, you know, generosity to the poor, you don't close up your heart. If you see a brother in need, you give. Uh, a love for apostolic doctrine. I mean, there's just a series of texts in 1 John, and not just in 1 John, but other places. There are certain fruits that come from walking with Jesus Christ. Fruits of regeneration. Love for the Scripture. A yearning to please God. A yearning to put sin to death. An actual growth in holiness and putting sin to death. These, these types of things. This is how this works. These things are evidences of being born again. Postulate one. Postulate two, I see these things in my life. Therefore, I'm born again. You see it? Is that a valid form of assurance? Absolutely. You need to see certain things in your life. If there's no fruit in you, you're not a Christian. John 15, he breaks off or cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. Breaks it off. It's just cut off. There's got to be fruit. And that's not just leading people to Christ. That's a whole bunch of things, internal and external. A whole bunch of things change in your life when you're a Christian. If nothing has changed in your life, you're not a Christian. But if you see these changes in your life, you've got assurance. All right, what's the third one? Poured out into the heart by the Holy Spirit. Now, what is that? What is that? Joy. Is it reasoned out? No, it's just experienced. It's just something you know. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. Is that assurance? Absolutely. Now, Christy wasn't quite sure she liked this because there was a sense of chronology here. First this, then this, then this. I don't think, I'm not saying that. I'm actually giving a more sense of hierarchy of certainty kind of thing. You know, these things are higher. When the Holy Spirit testifies, you just know. Can't put it into words. You just know that you're a Christian. Just know it. But these things are never independent from each other. There's a kind of a whole family or system of, of assurance here. As a matter of fact, if we just have this and there's none of this, I think you're not a Christian. I don't think, I think the whole three go together. Now, what in the world is this? It's a crooked line. I meant it to be kind of like a, kind of a, all right, it's not going to heaven because we're talking about assurance. You don't need assurance in heaven. I mean, you just see and you know and it's done, right? This is a kind of experience that very few of us have, all right? It's not intrinsically different from what we have down here, but it just starts to go, you know? There's a sense of power that comes upon you that you just know that you're a child of God. You know that you are born again in a way you've never known it before. One Puritan talked about it this way. Father and a son. You're going to hear all this in the sermon in a couple weeks. I don't care. You need to hear something several times. So, Father and son are walking down the road together. Son knows he's a child of the father. Son knows the father loves him. The son enjoys holding the father's hand. The two of them are walking side by side. But suddenly, an impulse comes over the father and he grabs his son, takes his son up, hugs his son, kisses his son on the cheek says, I love you, gives him a squeeze, 
sets them back down and they continue walking along the road. Now, what is that? Well, the relationship's no more stable or secure than it was before, but the sun feels different as they continue that walk. You know what I'm talking about? You say, what does that have to do with my walk with Christ? Well, let me give you some testimonies concerning these things, and then we'll get into Bernard. How many of you ever heard of D.L. Moody? Dwight L. Moody. Okay, Moody Bible Institute and all that. Moody was a revivalist leader and uh, evangelist, and he was in charge of a mission. He was leading a mission, and uh, it was moderately successful, but he did not have a sense of the presence of God. He was not satisfied at all with his spiritual life. He felt something was missing, and he was hungry for something, hungry for more, hungry for more fruit, more closeness with Christ, more. This is a testimony. This is what he said. I began to cry as never before for a greater blessing from God. The hunger increased. I really felt that I did not want to live any longer. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, it was on Wall Street, by the way. Oh, what a day. Now, I don't know what Wall Street was in the 1800s, but um, it's where it was. He said, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Wow. Has anything like that ever happened to you? Nothing like that's ever happened to me. Something like that, perhaps. I'm down here on the slope, but I'm not... Now, where is he? He's up here. How about Jonathan Edwards? Ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? Okay. Testimony from him. As I rode out in the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that was for me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared so great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent and with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thoughts and conceptions, which continued as near as I can judge for about an hour. Whoa! Such as to keep me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve him and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. So he's knocked to the ground for about an hour, just, you know, has anything like that ever happened to you? There's no shame in it. I'm just saying, you know, where where is he? Where's Edwards for that hour? You know? How's his assurance as he walks out of the woods that day? Real strong. Poured out into the heart by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Romans 5 5. An effusion, a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 5. Now, I've got other testimonies. I want to read one more, and then we'll get into our thing. How many of you ever heard of Blaise Pascal? He was a mathematician, scientist, chemist, just amazingly intelligent guy. 
lived in the 17th century in Paris. And when he died, they found sewed inside his shirt a piece of paper. And on it were written the following words. This day of grace, 1654, from about half past ten at night to about half after midnight, fire. One word, fire. That's all it said. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the wise. Security, security, feeling, joy, peace. These are just words. What is another word for security? Assurance. Security, security, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, thy God shall be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of all except God. He can be found only in the ways taught in the gospel. Greatness of the human soul. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. Is he babbling? <laughs> what is this? It's just you almost can't put it into words. It's an experience. Keep reading. I have separated myself from him. He feels sinful. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? That I be not separated from thee eternally. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and him whom thou hast sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, I have separated myself from him. I have fled, renounced, crucified him. May I never be separated from him. He maintains himself in me only in the ways taught in the gospel. Final words. Renunciation, total and sweet. Renunciation means I turn my back on the world. I want this. Whatever this is, I want it. I want more of it. I want Christ. And at that point, he started doing his Christian writing, and we still have it. Ponce's, it's called The Thoughts, and also um, his provincial letters. He pulled in and just started writing on Christ at that point. Changed his life. Now, what is this? First of all, it's not some kind of empty-headed buzz or nirvana or something like that. It's an experience of a person, of Jesus Christ, of God himself. You know what I'm talking about? And it does not, from that point on, make everything all right. You never sin again, whatever. It's not that. There's just a sense in which your father has picked you up and given you a big hug and then set you back down and then off you go. Now, should we want that kind of thing? Should we seek it? Should we be hungry for it? Well, look at the prayer there in Ephesians chapter 3. I've got it printed there. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, what are all those words talking about? It seems the same thing we've been reading about. Paul prays that we, that the Ephesians may have power together with all the saints to grasp that love. That we may, in effect, he literally says, know what can't be known. To know the unknowable. Namely, the dimensions of Christ's love for you. 
Now you say, well, should we seek this? It's kind of like seeking an experience. I'm not talking all about seeking an experience. I'm talking about seeking God. I'm talking about seeking Him. That He may do this to you. That He may pour out His love into your heart by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. The question I ask there on the sheet is, are you thirsty for that? Is that something you want? Look at John 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and called out in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant what? The Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Streams of living water flowing from within you, I would say out, around, out to non-believers, out to believers, out to brothers and sisters in Christ, just a river flowing by the power of the Spirit. Is that your experience with Christ today? And if not, then come to Jesus. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Come and be satisfied. One final verse. You're going to get all this in a few weeks, but it's all right. Luke 11. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now look at this verse. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what? The Holy Spirit to those that ask Him. Now, we're talking about your heavenly Father, right? Your Father in heaven. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if you don't have the Spirit of God already, you're what? You're not a Christian. Therefore, He's not your heavenly Father, right? So now, He's already your heavenly Father. You're asking your heavenly Father for what? The Holy Spirit. What is that referring to? It's referring to, I think, the love of God being poured out into the heart by the Spirit whom He has given us. Why not? And it is a yearning for God. And you are asking, I want to know you more. I want to experience you at a deeper level than I have before. I want to feel your fire inside me. I want to know that you love me. I want to know your will for my life. I want you, God. And this is what you're asking. You're on your knees asking for this. Is He going to spurn that prayer request? That's the very thing He's been working for all along. That's salvation. Is that your heart would be so in tune with His, so yearning for Him, that that's all you want in life is Him. That's what you're looking for. That's what you're, and what Jesus is saying in Luke 11 is, you're evil and you know how to give good gifts to your children. I know what to do when I hear a prayer like that. I know what to do. I'm not going to miss it. I'm not going to be inattentive and, oh, what was that again? I'll be all over that request. Now, that doesn't mean as soon as you begin praying, you're going to go, whoosh. I'm not saying that. Not at all. But seek it. Seek it. Seek it. Ask Him. Ask Him. Day after day after day. I was talking to somebody earlier and they said, well, I don't know. I'm just kind of afraid of this kind of thing. It's like we're seeking experience or something like that. No, I've, I've said before, we're not. We're seeking God. We want Him. Well, it could be disappointing I mean, suppose you don't get it. Suppose you don't get the thing you're looking for. Well, we've already refuted that. Romans 5, 5 says, hope does not disappoint. You're not going to be disappointed seeking God. No way. But the person said to me, well, I have an, an analogy. Suppose I promise you a Lexus 
And then a week later or two weeks later, I say, look, I, I can't give you the Lexus. I'm going to give you a Ford Contour instead. I said, now, wait a minute. I drive a Ford Contour. I like that car. I said, well, you, you understand the point. Won't you be disappointed? But I understood the context of our conversation, and I stopped and I said, um, am I going to get the Lexus later? He said, no. I said, then the analogy doesn't fit. Because in all honesty, wherever you are on this, it's still short of heaven, isn't it? It's not even close to heaven. I don't care what these guys experienced. D.L. Moody, Edwards, Blaise Pascal, it's not even close to heaven. Nothing compared to heaven. We're going to get the Lexus. We're going to get more than the Lexus. And suppose you've been crawling to work every day and somebody comes and says, I'm going to give you a Lexus, but first I'm going to give you a Ford Contour. How do you feel about the Ford Contour? Oh, I'll take it. I'll take it. Give me the Ford Contour. Give me the skateboard. I was crawling. You know? Anything. I'm hungry for God to pour out his love into my heart. All right. So seek it. What do I do? I'll tell you what, I, what you do. Romans 3.14, you go and get on your knees before the Father and ask Him for it. It's just that simple. And then after that, He's going to say, okay, you need to purify your life. You need to start getting rid of some sins. And you say, okay, and you do. And there's a, there's a blending, a purifying, a yearning, a growth, and then off it goes. I saw a hand. Does somebody want to ask? Yes. Mm-hmm. Romans 8.16 The Holy Spirit testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> he just says it. He just, he just, he's there. He testifies. He says you're a child of God. He approves of actions that you do in the Spirit. When you put sin to death, the context in Romans 8 definitely is of putting sin to death by the power of the Spirit. If you you know, live by the misdeeds of the body, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. I and mean, there's a whole context here. We'll get to it in Romans 8. But the point is that when that stuff starts happening in your life, the Spirit testifies you're a child of God. And you just see it and you just know. And your assurance grows. So what I would say is, you know, if these things make sense to you but seem a little foreign, like it's foreign language, don't doubt your salvation. Just go ask Him for it. Just go ask Him for those kinds of things. Get on your knees and say, God, reveal yourself to me. I'm hungry for you. I want you. I'm willing to turn off the TV. I'm willing to not go spend the night on the Internet. I'm willing to not go do a bunch of things. I want you tonight, God. You're what I want. I'm satisfied with you and with you alone. I'm hungry for you. And He'll testify to your spirit, your child of God. And I'm not saying it's going to be without struggles. There are going to be times in which dry as dust. You're saying, well, I should have watched the ball game. You know, but I'm saying it's well worth it. And so did Bernard of Clairvaux. And that's why I wanted to do Bernard tonight. Bernard, if anything, he was a guy who was passionate for this, passionate for union with Christ, experiences of union with Christ, out of which he had strength and power to minister. He was called that contemplator, and he was somebody who contemplated deeply. Now, I've got listed there at the bottom major events of Bernard of Clairvaux's life. He was born in 1090 in Fontaine, Burgundy, France, near Dijon. Ever heard of Dijon mustard? It's kind of that area. Uh, so he lived there. Um, I'm just going quickly through the chronology, and then we'll get more detail. In 1112, he entered a monastery at Citeaux. It was a um, Cistercian monastery of the Benedictine uh, order. Uh, three years after that, he founded a monastery at Clairvaux, and he was there the rest of his life. 1147, he preached the Second Crusade. Talk about that. He died in 1153. 
most people's chronologies would end there, but he being Catholic, it continues. Uh, 1174, he was canonized by Pope Alexander uh, III, and then 1830, many years, seven centuries later, he was made a so-called doctor of the church by Pope Pius VIII. So that's just kind of an overview of his life. Let's look... Um, That should say an overview of Bernard's life. That's what you get when you use a template. Last time it was John Chrysostom. Now we've got Bernard. And, and we have, as we had with John and with Augustine, the impact yet again of a godly mother. He was born in 1090. His parents were pious of the highest level of nobility in Burgundy. His father was a knight named Teclin, and, and he died on the First Crusade. The First Crusade was launched by Pope Urban in 1095. Remember the Crusades were an organized effort, a military effort by European Christians, for want of a better, I'm not sure they're truly born again, but people from Christian nations, so-called, coming to liberate the city of Jerusalem from the Muslims. And his father died in the First Crusade. All right, His mother, Aleth, was a, a daughter of a noble house of Monbar. She died when Bernard was still a boy, but she had a deep influence on him. Um, his mother had desired to enter a religious order to become a nun, I guess, or convent, but she married instead. And during the last years of her life, she ran the home as if it were a monastic order. So the home was like a little monastery. That's kind of what she wanted anyway. Father was dead, and they just, they just ran the home that way. She prayed deeply for Bernard and wanted him to enter a, a monastery at some point, and uh, he was deeply affected, I think, by that. And his mother's example ran deeply with him. His brothers were physically strong like their father had been. They were training to be knights, training to be soldiers, basically. But he was sickly, most of his life sick, and so he was not really fit for a military life, uh, really more fit for a uh, monastery. During his first 10 years at Clairvaux, though, he had so, so much physical problems that he was virtually confined to the monastery. In 1198, he entered the monastery at Citeaux. Now, the monastery of Citeaux had been founded by a man named Robert of Molesmus, and it was at that point on the edge of extinction. They hadn't had a new con uh, convert or an initiate or whatever in years. <laughs> this is one of these big moments in church history, okay? Knock at the door, he opens the door, and there's Bernard with 30 men wanting to join the, con or the monastery. 30 men. He had basically said, I'm going. He persuaded his brothers, he persuaded his uncle and 25 other men uh, to come with him into this thing. And they basically saved it. I mean, it was about to go bankrupt and go out of business. And as it was, for the next year or two, there were incredible austerity measures they had to put in just to survive financially. But 30 of them came. And by the way, we're going to find out more about Bernard, but he was incredibly persuasive. And so much so that when he would come to call in the village, women would hide their sons or their husbands, depending on who is it, you know, lest he persuade them to join the, the uh, monastery. Very, very persuasive. Here he comes again. Better hide him. Hey, hon, don't you have work to do out in the field? Come back in a couple hours. Now, Benedictine monast uh, monasticism had been named after Benedict of Nursia, and it had kind of run its course at that point. The original ideals were good, piety, simplicity of life, a life of prayer, but corruption had taken over, laxness and worldliness. And so within, and you're going to see this again and again in, in monastic movements, they start out a certain way and then they just degenerate. 
It just the future generations just don't keep with that same zeal, that same love. And it just becomes lax, it becomes corrupt. So within that comes a purifying movement to kind of get back to the old ideals or even supersede them. And the Cistercians were that way for the Benedictine monks. The Cistercians came and said, we've got to clean this thing up. The Trappists, have you ever heard of Trappist monks that make little jellies, little jars of jelly? Maybe you've never heard of them. But the Trappists were a, were a movement within the Cistercians when the Cistercians went corrupt. That's kind of how it keeps working. All right, It goes for a while, holy, full of zeal, and then it just kind of decays because sin nature is so strong. So then there becomes a reform movement within it. Cistercians were a reform movement. And Bernard was probably the, the greatest, the best known of the Cistercians. The movement for reform had already started before Bernard got there. He just continued it. Uh, he'd been uh, there just a short time when he was challenged to found Clairvaux, another uh, uh, Benedictine monastery. The movement grew rapidly through Bernard's leadership and persuasion. So some of those husbands or sons were actually persuaded to join the monastery, and it just really started to grow. The time came to plant a daughter offshoot in Clairvaux. It was a wild valley branching off from that of the Aube River. It was just an untamed area of France, and they planted the Clairvaux Monastery there. Uh, he was named, of course, abbot of the new monastery, and from 1130 to 1145, about 15 years, no less than 93 monasteries were formed in connection with that movement. So it was really a kind of an immense revival that was going on, just uh, by the power of the Spirit, I believe, and through the influence of Bernard. Now, what was the nature of his ministry? Well, Bernard was the most influential preacher of his day, frequently preached before popes and kings. He preached all over Europe and Germany, Italy, and the Alps. Ever heard of a St. Bernard? Well, he preached in Switzerland and in France. Tremendous personal courage and clarity of communication in his preaching made his preaching very powerful and effective. He was not afraid to call sin, sin, even if it was in the life of a pope or a king or in his own life. He just wanted to be pure. He wanted to walk with God. He had a compassion and was constantly pleading for mercy for the downtrodden and uh, even unpopular people, including the Jews. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there was a time that, that the Jews were being persecuted and he spoke up for them at great personal risk. Um, and he was constantly involved in relief for the poor. He was involved in the major issues of his day, wealth, the use of money and power, governmental intrigues, papal intrigues, prejudice, daily purity of life, these kinds of things. He was always seeking moral reform and personal piety, and he stressed the need above all things for a personal experience with Jesus Christ. You need to have a personal walk with Christ or you're not converted, you're not born again. You needed to know him. And so he also, to that end, encouraged self-denial and the sublimation of all worldly loves to one thing, God. God taking priority over all things. Now, you know, you think about the 11th century world in Europe and the comforts of 11th century worldly life as compared to the comforts of 21st century American life. Which of us needs to turn our back on the world more? 11th century Europeans or 21st century Americans? Could it be that God may be calling us to some renunciation, turning our backs on the world, knowing more about Jesus Christ? In his own monastery, uh, Bernard was strict about poverty. He strictly enforced poverty. So if you came there, if you were persuaded that you were going to join with him, you took a vow of poverty, and that was important. However, he was not opposed to the church having money and using it. just needed to be used well. That's all. So those 93 monasteries that were opened up, that took money. The buildings had to be built, and that's what the money was used for, but never for personal luxury. 
Now, the center of his ministry was a contemplation, a meditation on the love of God in Christ. His desire was union with Christ. He wanted to be one with Christ. He wanted to know Jesus. He wanted to know Him. Now, he did preach the Second Crusade. I'll talk about that in a minute. But he felt it was much more important for men to repent and trust Christ than to fight the Muslims. Primary concern was calling people into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. All life would then be centered around this love relationship with Christ. A deep experience of Christ through meditation and prayer was the center of it all. He was also involved in fighting false teaching. He had a struggle with Peter Abelard. Now, Peter Abelard was probably the sharpest theologian of his day. But he was uh, what we would call kind of a liberal. He was bending the rules. He was moving away from orthodoxy in some ways. And the way that Bernard sought to struggle with Abelard, not just him, but just heretical movements and false teaching in general, was his preaching. He was a powerful preacher. He simply preached the word. And he preached in a powerful, clear, effective Latin that everybody spoke Latin, that's what the church language, that people understood it was, it was powerful, it was effective, and he preached the word. On many occasions, his sermons to heretics resulted in, the, in scores of heretics returning to the church. That was his approach, convert them through the word. As a theologian and inspirational writer, Bernard said that theology and Bible study should penetrate hearts rather than just explain words. Now, this is important because the major theological movement of the day was scholasticism. Have you ever heard about the debates over how many angels could dance on the head of a pin? That was the essence of scholasticism. They're constantly haggling this kind of stuff out. They were great debaters. You know, they would cut and divide things and analyze them and work them apart. They believed that a personal kind of relationship with the Almighty was impossible. God didn't do that. Realize you've got that whole hierarchical feudal system. You don't get that close to the king. You know, just, that's impossible. And so we've got to be kind of down here out in the fields working with logic and with reason and, and working things through. And Bernard said, no, we can go right into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That, that curtain in the Holy of Holies has been rent asunder. Let's go right into the very presence of God. Let's have boldness to enter. It was Bernard's yearning to have an intimate fellowship with God, and so he hated scholastic theology. He thought it was the exact opposite of what he was trying to do through the preaching of the Word. Now, as a result, he was constantly at odds with Peter Abelard, uh, what one book called the Medieval Age's quintessential doubter. Peter Abelard doubted everything. Now, we talked about the, the Enlightenment when Descartes, doubted whether he even existed, but he couldn't doubt that he thought. Remember, I think, therefore I am. I never wondered whether I am. How many of you have wondered whether you are or not? But, I mean, Descartes, that's where he was at. What am I? Well, see, you're very philosophical. That's it. But most people don't wonder, am I or am I not? They get up and say, what do I want for breakfast? You know, that's kind of where we're at. But um, Descartes, you know. But Abelard was questioning everything and working his questionings through. And he was a phenomenal debater. And he had an incisive wit and uh, logic, and he just sliced people up. And nobody wanted to debate him except Bernard. And Bernard was fearless, and he said, first of all, I don't have the training of this guy. I don't have the intellect, but I have Christ. Okay, Now, I'm not saying uh, that Peter Abelard was not a Christian. I actually think, to some degree, Bernard overreacted to Abelard's theology in some, in some levels. It's hard to assess it, and it's beyond our scope for this evening. But I'll say that they debated many times, and Abelard was afraid of Bernard. You know, most people are afraid of Abelard. Abelard is afraid to, uh, because he spoke this way directly from God. There was a sense of the immediacy and the presence of God when he taught. 
And so it kind of meant, made scholasticism and all those debates meaningless. Now, in terms of society, government, and church politics, for four years after 1130, Bernard was heavily involved in the politics surrounding the selection of a new pope. Papal election had been disputed, and Bernard championed the cause of Innocent II against his rival, rival Anacletus II. And you see, what had happened was some of the chads were swinging, and they weren't sure whether the machines should be used and who it was, so they had to go to a hand count. And so what he did was he went with Innocent against... You see, these things, there's nothing new under the sun. All right? They had papal elections back then, and there was a dispute over who really won. And so frequently they would fight it out. Literally, there'd be kings that would line up on one side and kings on the other, and they'd fight it out because a pope back then was very influential. Um, but Bernard's uh, uh, preaching was more influential than just about anything at that point. Very powerful and influential. And he went from country to country preaching and leading uh, the cause, championing the cause of Innocent II. And also he worked in Anacletus II that he not set up a rival papacy, which had happened before basically persuaded him to just cease and desist and give it up. So, in effect, he acted like the Supreme Court that said, look, Al, you lost, kind of, you know, and this, and, and it's almost unheard of because back then they fought. I mean, we have a constitutional government that protects so that you don't have these kind of civil wars and struggles and all that. Um, but it was Bernard's um, persuasion and his, uh, just his personal influence that prevented that, that catastrophe from happening. Now, there was a debate raging constantly at that point on the relationship of the church and the state. Now, Bernard was a staunch churchman who believed the civil power rested beneath the power of the state. Realized that it, would, it was unthinkable there would be a pure separation of church and state. It was unthinkable. It didn't enter anybody's mind. The question is, who's above who? That's the issue. And he believed that the civil power is below that of the church. He was involved, therefore, in politics. He was involved in the life of nations. And at one point, he was challenged by the Pope to preach a second crusade. Now, remember, the first crusade had been called by Pope Urban in 1095. His father had died in that crusade. Muslim forces had captured the city of Edessa in eastern Turkey, and it was a straight line right down to Jerusalem. At that point, Europeans were holding Jerusalem. It was like I think it was literally called the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and there were Europeans there in charge of Jerusalem, and that was threatened by the Muslims. Eventually, they won it back. But um, King Louis VII of France asked Bernard to preach the crusade, but he refused. Louis then went to the Pope, and the Pope ordered it, and Bernard said, okay. And he preached. Now realize, we're talking about a very mystical guy. We're going to get to his mysticism in a minute, and we're going to read some things. That's the real meat here tonight, is the things that he wrote about union with Christ. Powerful stuff. But I think it's good to get this history a little bit, at least, so you understand who this man was. Anyway, um, he prayed about it, but... When, see, when Bernard prays about things, it's different than you and me praying about things. There's a sense of, God, do you want me to do this? And, you know, even uh, they would testify to certain miracles. I doubted some of those medieval miracles, but just senses, signs, and, and the presence of God, and yes, you should do the Second Crusade. Now, the reason I, I tell you that is, you know, for all of this, you still want to test all experiences by the Scripture. All experiences must be tested by the Scripture. There are some movements that say, you know, I had this experience and I don't care what your Bible tells me. No, it doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit does not contradict Himself and therefore He will never lead you into an experience that contradicts His Word. Now, why am I saying that? Did the Second Crusade contradict the Word of God? Some would say yes. Pacifists and all that. I'm not going to get into the issue of pacifism right now, but what I'm going to say is be careful of experiences. Test everything, it says in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5, test all things by the Scripture. 
And so he was a mystic and he went and felt the Lord was leading him to preach. And so he began preaching the Second Crusade. And I'm telling you what, he emptied villages. I mean, men were ready to go. He was that powerful a preacher. He had that much influence. He'd just come to the town and he would preach the crusade and they were ready to go. They would run and get their things and they went. They literally went. Now, we're not quite sure exactly how many soldiers went. Estimates range anywhere from 100,000 to 1.5 million. That's quite a range. All right? Probably the truth somewhere in the middle. Maybe 700,000 soldiers went to try to protect Jerusalem from the Muslims. But it was an absolutely catastrophic event. Uh, most of them never made it. Most of them died of starvation and disease en route. Now, you don't just jump on a C-135 transport and get to Jerusalem. You've got to, you've got to travel those miles from northern France all the way to the Holy Land. And in some cases, you have to fight your way there. Okay? And so, many of them never made it. Um, the ones that did were so weakened and sickened that they were no match for the Muslim armies that faced them, and many of them died or were captured. And so, it left, I'm sure, Bernard seriously questioning what he had heard from God, as you can imagine. I mean, and in the end, he didn't doubt that he heard it from God. He, he felt that there had been sin on the part of the Crusaders and that they had blown it. So he kind of blame shifted on that one. The reason I go into this whole issue of the Second Crusade is to, just so that you say, I mean, understand what I'm saying. These things should be sought, but you've got to test everything by Scripture. Scripture trumps every other card in the deck, trumps your experiences. But as I read these experiences, Jonathan Edwards and all that, most of them are saturated with Scripture. Look at Blaise Pascal. He's got two quotes from John 17 in there. He's got that statement made by Ruth to Naomi, your God will be my God. I mean, it's just Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. So I believe if this is a true experience, it's saturated with the truth of God. There's a sense of truth. It's not an empty-headed thing. There's a sense of the truth in the Scripture of God. So anyway, he preached the uh, crusade. One last thing about him before we get into his actual writings. The preaching of the crusade had an ugly side effect and it was anti-Semitism. In the Rhineland, a monk named Raoul wandered around telling crowds that if they were going to go all the way to Jerusalem to fight for the faith, a logical first step was to kill Jews in their own villages. Anti-Semitism has a long history in Europe. Anti-Jew, there were anti-Jewish riots in Mainz. The archbishop, who was a good man, sheltered many Jews in his palace and sent for Bernard to help quell the riot. Bernard came at once and began preaching that Raoul was arrogant, without authority, a preacher of insane and heretical doctrines, a liar and a murderer. So, so much for that. Raoul snuck out of town and the riot was over. And he is remembered to this day with, with, uh, in Mainz with uh, uh, a statue or a, you know, a carving that represents him as a righteous Gentile who protected the lives of Jews. And to this day, many Jews in the Rhineland named their children Bernard after him. Uh, Bernard Baruch, there are a number of Jews that have been named after Bernard because of what he did. All right, now let's talk about his writings. Let's get to what the words he actually wrote. Bernard's mysticism, a yearning after God. We have basically three categories of writings or things to work with. We've got his personal letters, of, of which there are over 500 that survive. We have his sermons and his writings and treatises, that category, and we have his hymns. Now, his hymns, these three are the most famous, the ones that I know. O Sacred Head Now Wounded, you know that one? Well, that's powerful. O Sacred Head Now Wounded with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown, how pale thou art with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn. This is the way he wrote. Very powerful. And it's still with us today. Jesus, the very thought of thee. Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills the breast, but sweeter far thy face to see. 
and in thy presence rest. That's powerful. Jesus, the very thought of thee, the sweetness fills the breast. But sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. That's a yearning for heaven is what that is. And a foretaste, a little foretaste. The very thought of thee. I want my, my heart filled with sweetness until I get to see you face to face. And then finally, Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts. That's, I think, even in the, I think it made the Baptist hymnal. Bernard of Clairvaux in the Baptist hymnal. I mean, isn't that something? The twists and turns of church history. I just love it. You know what's even, even more fun for me is, uh, a number of, of years ago, I went back to my family and I went to the Catholic church with them. It was a Christmas service and I went for the sake of family unity and we went together and we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. <laughs> That priest, I don't know if he just doesn't know history or, you know, whatever it was, but it was just, maybe he's trying to be ecumenical, to reach out. You know, I don't really know. But uh, anyway, those hymns are beautiful. His sermons, he left behind a, a treasury of 88 sermons on the Song of Solomon. Now, what would you, if you were preaching the Song of Solomon, I mean, could you get 88 sermons out of that? And he only got halfway through the book. He was in chapter 3. And they don't know whether he had preached the others and we just lost them or whatever. 88 sermons on the first half of the Song of Songs. Now, what could you do with that? Now, if you read it, you know, it'll make you blush in some places. I mean, it's just an amazing, you know, the straight reading of it is that it's just a, a word of praise for married love. What it is. But it was fertile ground for mysticism. It really had to do with the depth of relationship of love between Jesus Christ and the church. And so he just was preaching about a mystical union between Christ and the church that we could experience even now by faith. So 88 sermons and then a writing entitled On Loving God. Now what I'd like to do is just, with the time we have left, just read some of the things that he wrote so you get a sense of the way that he put thoughts into words. On the topic of diversity of meanings from a single text of Scripture, can you get more than one thing out of a single verse of Scripture? And that bothered some people. And he said, I will not be condemned by a prudent person because of a diversity of meanings as long as truth is protected in each case. And the love which the scriptures should serve is more helpful to many the more true meanings it draws forth from them for its purposes. Why should what we experience time and again in using things bother us in the case of scripture? How many uses does water alone serve for our bodies? Think about it. I mean, water washes us, it nourishes us, you drink it, use it for cooking, etc. I mean, there's just so many different uses for water. How many, how many uses does water alone serve for our bodies? And so, any single text will not be off the mark if it gives rise to different understandings that can be adapted to the diverse needs and purposes of souls. Now, there's a long history behind this statement. Allegory, for example, I think that you really could accuse him of allegory with Song of Songs. And when you have the allegorical interpretation, then you can read anything you want into Scripture. And if you can read anything you want into Scripture, we don't have Scripture anymore, do we? So therefore, there need to be certain rules of exposition, grammatical, logical rules, so that we know whether we're interpreting the Scripture right or wrong. He seems to acknowledge that. He says, any meaning is fine as long as it accords with truth. There's got to be truth in each thing. But I believe that you can get multiple meanings out of a text of Scripture. Best example that I've found in my own life is the statement made um, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 when he's giving his testimony when his mind was changed into that of an animal. And at the end of it, he says, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. 
The first time that I read through that and thought about it, I said, if I were to categorize that statement, those who walk in pride he is able to humble, I would call it a warning. Don't walk in pride or he's going to smack you down. Look what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Do you want your mind changed into that of an animal? Well, then don't walk around on the palace of your roof and say, is this not the great Babylon that I've created for the praise of my glory and the display of my splendor? Don't do that or else he's going to discipline you, right? Would you say that's a fair assessment of this statement, those who walk in pride he is able to humble? It is a warning, isn't it? Don't walk in pride. But then, as you go on in your Christian life, you start saying, wait a minute, pride is a big part of my life. Pride affects everything I do. There seems to be hardly anything I ever do that there's not some self in it somewhere where I weren't frustrated that somebody didn't notice or praise me for it. My evangelism is affected by pride. What will he or she think of me if I come out and just plainly preach the gospel? Everything is tainted and twisted by pride. My marriage is affected by it. My parenting affected by it. And then I say, wow, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who's going to free me from this pride? All of a sudden, I come back to Daniel 4, and what does it say? Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now it's a promise. Is that a valid interpretation of the text? Absolutely. For me as a Christian, I want to be humbled. I really do. I want to be a genuinely humble man when I'm 80. And I know I have to go through hard things, maybe even like what Nebuchadnezzar went through. May he forbid it, but whatever it takes. Has the verse changed? No, but I'm different. I have different needs as I come to that same text. Do you see what I'm getting at? And so he would take texts of Scripture and he would meditate on them and work them over and think about them. And that was the basis of his thinking. Now listen to this one. On meditating on the incomprehensible Christ. Christ was incomprehensible and inaccessible, invisible and completely unthinkable. Before his incarnation, I think he means. The second person of the Trinity, could you find him in the Old Testament? Yes, if you knew how to read Daniel 7, the Son of Man vision. Beyond that, it's really kind of hard to find the Trinity in the Old Testament. Some people find it in these statements, let us go down, there's a speaking. But if it's there, it's not a major emphasis in the Old Testament. So what he's saying is that Christ, before the incarnation, was incomprehensible and inaccessible, invisible and completely unthinkable. Now he wishes to be comprehended, to be seen, wishes to be thought about. How, you ask? As lying in the manger, resting the, in the virgin's lap, preaching on the mountain, praying through the night, or hanging on the cross, growing pale in death, and also as rising on the third day, showing the apostles the place of the nails, the signs of victory, and finally ascending over heaven's secrets in their sight. He wants to be known now because he's lived a life, and that life is recorded in Scripture. You see how that works? Meditating on the incomprehensible Christ. He talked a lot of steps of love. This was big for him, or stages along the road to perfection. Steps of love, that carnal love through which the carnal life is excluded and the world is condemned and overcome is good. When it is also rational, it advances. It is perfected when it becomes spiritual. Frequently, he saw three steps. That was just one of the big themes with him. Threes, one, two, three. First, you've got the carnal love in which you say, this is better for me. I enjoy my prayer time and my Bible reading time more than I enjoy watching the ball game. And so you begin to renounce the world and turn to spiritual things. And he says, that's good. Then it becomes rational. Namely, there's a reasoned out understanding in your mind of your relationship with Christ. It's deeper now than just the so-called carnal love that caused you originally to turn away from the world. 
then it becomes spiritual. The steps of love. All right, on the superiority of love. Of all the motions, senses, and affections of the soul, it is love alone in which the creature is able, even if not on an equal basis, to repay to its creator what it had received, to weigh back something from the same measure. So love is the thing that we as creatures can give back to God. That's the thing that He has commanded, isn't it? What's the first and greatest command? That we love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that the second, love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the thing that He wants us to give back. Now, as I said, He talked a lot about stages along the road to perfection. He didn't hesitate to say that this was above this and this is above this and this is above this. There were steps to Him, ever ascending steps. He wrote a book called The Steps of Humility and Pride in which he distinguished 12 degrees in the progress of humility. This may be, I guess, the predecessor to the 12-step program, but it's a different thing, entirely different steps. These are steps of spiritual growth and formation. All right? The, ne the, necess uh, sorry, the necessary ascetical preparation, in other words, you know, fasting, you know, self-denial, prepared you for that and then for the subsequent progress to mystical union with Christ. In a sermon on the Song of Songs, he noted seven ascending reasons why the soul seeks the word. And by the way, whenever he wrote about the soul, he always used the feminine, she or her, that kind of thing, speaking of the soul. I don't know why, but this is what he did, so I'm just quoting it the way he wrote it. Speaking of the soul and the word, the relationship between the two, to whom she consents for her correction, one, by whom she is illuminated for her knowledge, two, to whom she owes her virtue, three, by whom she is reformed to wisdom, four, to whom she is conformed to beauty, five, to whom she is wed for her fruitfulness, six, and whom she enjoys for her bliss. Seven things the soul gets out of the Word of God. On loving God, he wrote a book called On Loving God. I have one copy here, and it's right here. Uh, this is spectacular, and I'm going I'm to give it to somebody at the end. It's on a web page. Actually, I'll get, I can give you the... No, I can't. Sorry. All you need to do is just go to one of those search things and type in Bernard of Clairvaux, and you can get On Loving God. You can just download it on your computer and you just read it. It's really good stuff. Primary source. This is what he wrote. This is You want to know how he thinks? This is what he wrote. There are 15 chapters, and the chapters are re really about a page and a half long. It really is about 21, 22 pages downloaded. Why we should love God and the measure of that love how much, second, how much God deserves love from man in recognition of his gifts, both material and spiritual, and how these gifts should be cherished without neglect of the giver. Three, what greater incentives Christians have more than the heathen to love God, and so on. Now, I'm going to read part of this. Chapter one, why we should love God, and what should be the measure of that love. All right? You want me to tell you why God is to be loved, and how much. I answer, the reason for loving God is God himself. And the measure of love due to him is immeasurable love. Is this plain? Doubtless to a thought, thoughtful man, but I am a debtor to the unwise also. A word to the wise is sufficient, but I must consider simple folk also. He's a preacher. He wants to be sure what he's saying is clear to everyone. Therefore, I set myself joyfully to explain more in detail what is meant above. We are to love God for himself because of a twofold reason. Number one, nothing is more reasonable. And number two, nothing is more profitable. So he's giving you reasons why you should love God. It makes sense for you to do it. I mean, what better thing to love than God? Why shouldn't God be the center of your affections? Why shouldn't he be the center of your life? Why shouldn't he be what you seek with all the seeking that you do? Right? Do you realize your heart 
is a desire factory. It's constantly wanting something. Maybe some of you want food. You didn't eat dinner yet. All right, you're thinking, I want to eat. Okay? Maybe you want something else. We're always wanting, aren't we? He's saying the wanting should be God. We should want Him. Not that the other things aren't things that are reasonable. God made us physical and so we eat. But the ultimate wanting is we should want God. Second Thessalonians three five. Tip of my tongue. Second Thessalonians three five. Write that one down. It says, "May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. May the Lord de- direct your hearts into God's love. The heart, therefore, has a direction, doesn't it? It's pointing towards something. It wants something. May the Lord direct your heart to want God's love." May, may the Lord direct your heart to want this. May that be the thing you want today. And that's what he's getting. He said, we love God because nothing is more reasonable and nothing is more profitable. When one asks, why should I love God? He may mean, what is lovely in God? Or what shall I gain by loving God? In either case, the same sufficient cause of love exists, namely God himself. Chapter 3. What greater incentives Christians have more than the heathen to love God? Do we have more incentives than non-Christians to love God? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The faithful know how much they have need of Jesus and Him crucified. But though they wonder and rejoice at the ineffable love made manifest in Him, they are not daunted at having no more than their own poor souls to give in return for such great and condescending charity. They love all the more because they know themselves to be loved so exceedingly. But to whom little is given, the same loveth little. So, in other words, we're not grieving over the fact that all we have to give to God for this incredible love of Christ is our souls. But we have that. And he goes on from there. I would love to just stand and read it, but I want to continue with some of the other things. In On Loving God, he speaks of steps of love. Step one is the love of a slave. Step two is the love of a mercenary. You know what a mercenary is? Somebody who's hired, right? And then step three, the love of a son. Now, when you say the love of a mercenary, hired by what? By good things that come from it, right? And he says it's a higher love to love just for love itself, for God himself alone. Not for what you get out of it, but just for him alone. That's the highest form of love. The love of a slave, the love of, you know, love of a slave is I love because I have to. I'm compelled to. God's got my arm twisted behind my back. If I don't, you know, I go to hell or I, I have all these awful things. I'm disciplined. You know, uh, uh. all right, fine. That's the love of a slave. Love of a mercenary is I love because, hey, I get I mean, good things happening here in my life. I like that. I like the peace. I like the joy. I like the sense of the presence of God. I like feel good. And then the love of a son. There are three types of souls who ascend to heaven. Those who are pulled there, those who are led there, and those caught up to heaven. All right? The caught up language is 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul says, I know a man in Christ who is caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, saw inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to talk about. This is Bible, folks. This isn't Bernard of Clairvaux. This is Paul, 2 Corinthians. I saw some things I can't put into words. I just can't tell you about them. I'm not permitted to and probably I couldn't do it anyway. All right? That's just 
It's the it's that life. And what he's saying is there are three types that ascend to heaven. Those that are pulled there. <laughs> Where am I going? You're going to heaven. Just come with me. All right. <laughs> and these are people who are born again, I think, but that just does not develop that love relationship the way it needs to be. And they're you know pulled to heaven. And then there are those that are led there. They want to go. They know where they're heading. And then there are those that are caught up. The first, he says of this, the first are certainly happy because they will possess their souls in patience. The second are happier because they will confess him voluntarily. The third are happiest. In God's deepest mercy, when the will's power is almost buried, they are wrapped or caught up into the riches of glory in a fiery spirit, not knowing whether they are in or out of the body, only knowing that they are wrapped. That's where we get the word rapture, by the way. Well, he obviously is building on Augustine. I mean, he read a lot of Augustine. It's amazing how these people... I, I got into um, Bernard when I was doing my dissertation on Calvin. Calvin loved Bernard of Clairvaux. And because I trust Calvin for the most part, and I think he's a solid exegete and a good theologian. Anybody that... You know, it's like any friend of yours is a friend of mine kind of thing. So I started reading Bernard. And Bernard is solid. I'm telling you. I mean, not everything, though. Not everything. He's one of the leaders of meditation devotion on the Virgin Mary. He denied the Immaculate Conception, did not believe that that was true, thought that Mary was sinful. But yet at the same time, you know, spent a great deal of time meditating on the Queen of Heaven. All right, one final quote, and then, I mean, we go on, but our time's out. Spiritual senses yearning for God. In tears I ask, how long shall we smell and not taste, gazing toward our homeland but not grasping it, hailing it from afar with sighs? Oh, truth! Homeland of exiles and end of exile. I see you, but caught in the flesh I cannot enter you. Befouled with sins, I'm not worthy to be admitted. O oh, wisdom, you reach mightily from one end to the other in setting up and maintaining things, and you arrange all things sweetly by blessing and ordering the affections. De- direct our actions as our temporal need demands and dispose our affections... Is that Augustinian? Dispose our affections? What does God have to do with our affections? Well, isn't 2 Thessalonians 3.5 telling us that we want God to direct our hearts into the love of God? Does God have the right to direct? My, I thought I have free will. Well, God does have the right to direct your heart. 2 Thessalonians 3.5 says so. God, direct my heart so that I want what you want me to want. I yearn for what you want me to yearn for. I love what you want me to love. My heart is prone to wander. Right? Direct my heart into the love of... You meditate on it. Second, second Corinthians, or second Thessalonians 3.5 and second, uh, Corinthians 13.14 Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and what was the next one? The love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. What do you mean love of God be with you? I thought nothing can separate me from the love of God. Well, what is the benediction then? May the love of God be with you. Is it not Romans 5.5? 5, 5? that He pours out His love into our hearts, that you walk in that love, you experience it, you know it, you feel it. It's not anymore because of the benediction. It's that you feel and experience and walk in it more. And that's what He's yearning for here. Direct our actions as our temporal need demands and dispose our affections as your eternal truth requires so that each of us may confidently glory in you and say, He has ordered love in me. Any questions about Bernard? Well, the Immaculate Conception, the whole doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is the idea that that Mary was protected from original sin and therefore that both Jesus and Mary were sinless. The idea being that Jesus could never be in the womb of a sinful woman. 
And so therefore, she's got to be sinless to protect Jesus from sin. Well, you're not a Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Any other questions? Who would like this? I'm going to download it another tomorrow. Raise your hand. First one to raise your hand gets love in God. There you go. Free of charge. Why don't we close in prayer and then we'll go our way. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.